Welcome to Socialist Revolution Podcast. Today, we're presenting the socialist solution to climate change. America will never be a socialist country. country. Attitudes are changing towards socialism. We believe the only solution is the establishment of a workers' government on a socialist program. Record forest fires, droughts, and heat waves have devastated the U.S. in 2020. But the capitalist system remains totally paralyzed in the face of a climate catastrophe. So what's the way forward in the fight against climate change? Socialist Revolution editor Antonia Balmer spoke on this question at a recent online Marxist school, which brought together hundreds of revolutionaries for a series of discussions on revolutionary theory and strategy. Antonio argues that only a fundamental break from the capitalist system can truly guarantee the survival of our species and the planet. With everything that's gone on this year, you know, so many historic events that have taken place in 2020, I think the world has experienced a decade's worth of global crises in the space of a single year. And things like uh, the pandemic and the onset of a global depression really confront billions of people with this realization that we're talking about really global scale crises. And yet looming in the background of all of that has been this other crisis that I think is actually on a scale that's almost unimaginably larger than anything else that we're talking about here, that anything that humanity has faced before. For millions of people, I think that it's been slowly sinking in the, the weight of the climate crisis and the truly apocalyptic implications of, of what we're talking about. The warming of the planet due to the, the greenhouse effect of all the emissions of the last 200 years is really bringing humanity to terms with the most threatening consequences of the entire history of capitalism. You know, in, in the Communist Manifesto, Marx explains that as capitalism's conjuring up such gigantic means of production in the right with the rise of modern industry, it's also unleashing forces beyond its control. You know, he, in his words, he says, bourgeois society is like the sorcerer who is no longer able to control the powers of the netherworld whom he has called up by his spells. And I think that's actually the, the meaning of the climate crisis. You know, it's, it's a reckoning not only with the results of large-scale industry that Marx analyzed during the peak of the Industrial Revolution, but it's also bringing us face-to-face -face with the unstoppable inner logic of the capitalist market. You know, the realization that the profit motive is the driving motor force that has brought us to this point. And now that is what's making it impossible to pull the emergency brake. And that's why the climate crisis has very direct revolutionary implications. And it will continue to be a major factor that's, that's radicalizing an entire layer of society. It's going to push the young generation of the working class, it's, it's now, which is now becoming a, a majority layer in, in the, the, the workforce of the United States, push them towards radical conclusions, towards ultimately socialist revolution. I think by now, a lot of the basic facts of climate change are understood by millions of people. You know, this average baseline temperature of the planet, which basically stayed the same for 10,000 years, is rapidly going up. And we're already more than one degree Celsius uh, warmer than, than the, the atmosphere was 
before the rise of capitalist industry, you know, in that space of time, the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere has increased by about 50%. And that's what has created this greenhouse effect, you know, this atmospheric blanket that traps heat and continually warms up the planet. But it's not just that we're seeing the effects of the last 200 years catch up to us. The process is accelerating. That's the key to understand. Nearly half of that increase in atmospheric carbon uh, that we've seen since pre-industrial times has taken place in the last 30 years. So along with those unprecedented rates of carbon emission, the warming itself is accelerating at an alarming rate. We've had incredible records broken almost every year. 20 of the warmest years on record have all occurred in the last 22 years. In February of this year, scientists recorded the warmest temperature ever in Antarctica. It's 69.3 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, and this past September on a global scale was the warmest month recorded in all of history. So, you know, of course, this has brought with it all kinds of, it's not just a, the warming temperatures, it's all kinds of extreme weather events that come along with it. It's quickly transforming this issue from an abstract concept into a very real, very direct threat. Um, because it's the difference between watching a video or reading an article about something that's supposed to happen later in the century and actually losing your home in a, in a flood or a fire. And, you know, this is actually speaking of, of storms. This year, I've seen more major storms in the Atlantic than any previous year so far. 29. They ran out of letters in the alphabet to, to name them, actually. More than a third of the U.S. population, over 105 million people, live in places that last year were impacted by some sort of disaster or climate emergency uh, severe enough to require FEMA assistance, whether it's a wildfire, a flood, or a storm. As for the wildfires in California and on the West Coast, the last 10 years have also shattered records almost every year, and this year has topped them off as the worst in history, breaking almost every measure, every record that has come before in terms of, of fires. So far, the land area burned in the western region, not just on the west coast, but also throughout the region, because the whole region is, is plagued by a, a mega drought that is the worst since the 1500s, which has led to a mass die-off of 150 million trees. If you put together the, the area that's been burned just this year, it's a, we're talking around 14,000 square miles, which is all of the surface area of a country like Taiwan or half the land area of South Carolina, if you wanted to look at it on a U.S. map. Of course, it's also not just heat waves and droughts. In other regions, you know, higher atmospheric temperature means there can be more evaporation and more moisture in the air and also record downpour. So last year was also one of the worst flood seasons on record in the U.S., impacting tens of millions in the Midwest along the Mississippi and, and Missouri River. Um, but you also have high tide flooding in coastal cities around the world, including in the U.S. and parts of Louisiana, Florida, Maryland, Virginia, which is just a result of the ocean level rising. It's, it's not just uh, storm related. So again, things that we used to describe as a problem we'd face later in the century, they're already here. And in the last century, global sea levels have risen by about 20 centimeters. And this too is accelerating because the ice caps are, are melting at a faster and faster pace. The, the ice sheets of Greenland lost a record half a trillion tons of ice last year, which is enough alone to raise global sea levels by a fraction of an inch. But if you put it all in the state of California, that would cover that state in four feet of water just in the space of one year. Other parts of the world, of course, are, are having even more severe effects. This summer, 
Bangladesh, a third of the land area of that country was flooded, displacing millions of people, destroying homes, crops. I mean, the, the devastation is not just something we're talking about uh, decades from now. It's happening right now. And of course, the parts of the world that imperialism has dominated and exploited are going to bear the brunt of these changes and have, of course, the, the least resources to confront them. The Paris Agreement of 2015 uh, is a toothless, symbolic, uh, ineffective agreement that, you know, it, it, all the targets that it, that it includes, there's no binding mandate for any country to, to follow them. But it did include a $100 billion aid promise to poor so-called developing countries to help them respond to the climate crisis. But, you know, just like anything else in that agreement, there's nothing binding about it. So that money never came. And meanwhile, every year, there's $2 trillion actually being transferred the other way around from ex-colonial countries to the richest imperialist countries in the form of loans, repatriation of profits, and, and so on. So that's the, the reality that we're facing. I think that in the last couple of years, what has really put things in stark terms and has been a, an eye-opener for a lot of people has been the, the reports published by the IPCC the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is not a research body. It's a commission of the UN representing 120 governments, which is responsible for compiling vast amounts of research conducted by thousands of scientific teams around the world. They summarize the findings and present a global picture of what's happening. Well, in 2018, the global picture they presented was a seriously alarmed picture of, of acceleration um, uh, of this process and the urgency of taking action. Just to mention a few key points, um, they indicated in, in 2018 that we've already passed the point of no return as far as keeping global temperatures below one degree warmer than pre-industrial levels. But their benchmark is we have 12 years to drastically change the course to keep it from exceeding 1.5 degrees Celsius. And of course, this was two years ago. So now we're talking about a window of time that is that is uh, a decade in, ahead of us. It shows you how much of an impact just half a degree can have because at the 1.5 degree mark, once we hit that, rising sea levels are set to eliminate half of the natural geographic range for vast numbers of species, including 6% of all insects, 8% of plants, 4% of vertebrates, which is a huge category of animal life. That's the result of hitting the 1.5 degrees of warming. At two degrees, those numbers double. So we're talking about twice the number of plants and animals losing half of their, their natural geographic range. Um, last year, the UN actually published a separate statement reporting that one million species of plants and animals are already facing the threat of extinction, some of them within decades. One example is coral reefs. I think a lot of people have heard that at that 1.5 degree mark, 90% of the world's coral reefs are expected to die out. At two degrees, they're expected to be wiped out entirely. So those... You know, th that, that, of course, has a lot of other chain effects um, for, the, the, for that ecosystem. At 1.5 degrees, they say global uh, annual fishing catch rate is expected to fall by 1.5 million tons. At 2 degrees, it's expected to double, to fall uh, the reduction in fishing by 3 million tons. Um, and, of course, in terms of the, the impact on society, starting with those ex-colonial and underdeveloped countries, as well as coastal cities around the world, agricultural regions, we're talking about hundreds of millions of people impacted, massive global refugee crises. Um, you could have the resurgence of disease and their spread to a much greater area, things like malaria, massive crop failure, 
a subsequent breakdown of the food supply chain, famine, an increase in heat-related mortality, more extreme weather and national disasters. So that was the report from 2018. Actually, last year, the IPCC published an even more dire report, and they now said basically the 1.5 degree benchmark, that ship has sailed. It's unlikely that we're going to keep things to 1.5 degrees. So it lays out an updated perspective, desperately explaining that we need to keep the warming to a limit of 2 degrees. And even that limit is projected to push 400 million more people into hunger and starvation. Up to 2 billion more people may no longer have adequate access to clean drinking water. 4.5 billion people are going to be subjected to heat waves. It could lead to a, a global uh, reduction in crop yields uh, by the year 2080 of about 30%. In short, this picture of the future, I mean, we're talking about decades ahead, but it is a catastrophic picture. Now, all of this, I think, has led to a major shift in the way that people think about the climate crisis, because on the one hand, you have a very clear time frame. Um, as well as a very clear objective for what it means to pull this emergency brake, you know, and that means that we need to stop the emission of greenhouse gases, we need to stop burning fossil fuels, and we need to have a massive transition to clean energy sources um, as quickly as possible. And this is why the climate crisis now has direct revolutionary implications, because the moment you think through what that transition will require, it becomes clear that we're talking about the transformation of just about every aspect of the global economy, something which capitalism is incapable of coping with very clearly. Just look at power generation, you know, it, we, all the, the electricity running our meeting, run, you know, powering our homes, all of that has to be changed, you know, so it's, it's not just a complete overhaul of the grid, but also all the infrastructure for it, the way you store energy, the way you distribute it to every Every house, every building, every home, the, the infrastructure leading to it needs to be adapted for new heat and electricity systems. Energy efficient insulation would affect every, every building, every hospital, every school. We're talking about transforming the transportation sector. You know, I mean, I don't know how many motor vehicles are out there that need to be retired and replaced with electric. That's a huge transition. All trucking, all public transport needs to go renewable. And of course, that would require mass transit to give some kind of a, a replacement for bringing all these vehicles off the roads. In terms of industrial production, almost every sector of, of, of industry would be affected. Every machine that is not electric, all, you know, all agriculture needs to overhaul its heavy machinery. It also requires moving away from intensive factory farming. That's another area that produces a ton of emissions towards more sustainable methods of, of farming. It means stopping all deforestation because that's the, the natural kind of um, carbon capture lo-fi technology that the world already has. It's, it's forests, no more clearing timber. Um, all air travel would ultimately need to go electric and that technology is still underway as far as I understand. So basically all of that is just talking about a zero carbon emissions transition. That's just to stop the problem from getting worse. You know, that actually doesn't include all the immediate defensive measures that should be taken just to mitigate the impact of climate changes that are already underway, the flood defenses that all coastal cities need to make, the relocation ultimately of tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions that are living in, in cities that within decades are going to be underwater, protecting the fresh water supply, protecting, you know, preparing agricultural territories to adapt to a much hotter climate. Um, attempted to reverse the damage to the natural ecosystems as much as possible. As radical as all this may sound, 
this is not some far off goal for humanity to aspire to by the end of the century. This is what needs to be done now to prevent more and more catastrophic consequences. And yet it's not happening. You know, really, this, this is a process that should have been begun, that should have been started uh, decades ago. This information, by the way, is not new to governments or to the capitalist class. The data uh, about the acceleration, you know, the updated projections are new, but the basic explanation of what carbon emissions were doing to the atmosphere, that has been understood by scientists and governments for about half a century. You know, the IPCC was formed in 1988. So from that point, you know, basically that's the admission of all the world's governments that they understand and acknowledge the problem. It's simply been allowed to continue for 32 years with their full, full knowledge. And not only that, the fossil fuel industry also had perfect knowledge of what they were doing. And not only were they allowed to, to, to continue, they were also allowed to deliberately sow doubts and carry on an enormous decades-long misinformation campaign with the, re with the help of reactionary politicians, with right-wing media. Um, they have you know, successfully divided public opinion. They've influenced about a third of the population, including a lot of working people, with climate skepticism. Um, I think it's also important to point out that it's not just the Republicans who are responsible for giving climate deniers a platform and generating skepticism. If millions of working people don't understand the climate crisis or the urgency to act, it's also because the petty bourgeois liberals have been framing this issue in a way that is completely out of touch with the lives of the working class or the reality of the class content of this issue. You know, for decades, environmental issues have been framed as an individual consumer problem that every person shares responsibility for, whether you're rich or poor, whether you own tons of land or an oil field, or you own nothing and you're working multiple jobs or you're out of a job. You know, the liberals blame Trump for spreading skepticism about science and other institutions, but there's a reason that those messages get such a widespread echo among millions of people who feel that they've been fooled by liberal elites and have had their livelihoods taken away. So, you know, that, that's the way it's been framed for decades. Now there's a shift taking place. And I think that people are starting to realize on a much broader scale, the role of capitalism at the center of this. You know, there's a shift in the psychology of the climate movement as it seeps into broader layers of the youth, no longer to have an individual approach that blames everyone equally, but understands, you know, there's, this is a class issue. There, the, the capitalist system and the profit motive is responsible for bringing humanity to this point. And the transition to clean energy is also a social demand that's going to need to be fought for. One fact that I think puts this into perspective is just that 100 fossil fuel companies are responsible for 71% of emissions over the last 30 years. Actually, just 25, a quarter of those companies are responsible for half of the emissions that have come out in the last 30 years. So, you know, a picture emerges from all of this that we have a struggle on our hands. It's not a problem of awareness or lack of political will, it's a struggle of class interests. Those capitalists stand to lose their entire market if fossil fuels are abandoned, and that's a sector that's actually been expanding quite rapidly. In the last 30 years, the fossil fuel industry has doubled its contribution to global warming by emitting more greenhouse gas in the last 30 years as the 237 years prior since the, the birth of the Industrial Revolution. That's why the banner of confronting the climate crisis is necessarily going to be a revolutionary banner. It's going to be a socialist one because the only way for this transition to be achieved is at the expense of capitalist markets um, and at the expense of their most basic of class interests, their profits. You know, those markets cannot remain intact.
those profit levels cannot be maintained while this transition is carried out. We're talking about a massive scale of investment that's necessary, trillions of dollars that will not be made voluntarily by the capitalists if there's no return. You know, and that everything about sustainability runs counter to the logic of, of commodity production. If you, if you can't charge people you know, month after month, if, if the energy is generating itself, it's cheaper and it's self-sustaining, you know, you're not, you know, if they're getting it from solar and from wind power, you're, you're destroying the, the possibility for, for a market. And so this, of course, applies in a, in a whole range of industries. It also is a problem that requires planning across industries. And that is something that is not possible within the limits of capitalism because you don't have a body that's making decisions on an entire economic level. You know, that's something that the, the working class under a socialist planned economy would be able to do. You also cannot have international planning. You know, I mean, all of these agreements, all of this hot air uh, from all of these meetings of the UN, all of the, the objectives, that the targets they've set themselves, it's led to no real change. The, the ruling force on a global scale is the global market. And so the bourgeoisie of a single country will never accept a policy which puts it at a disadvantage in relation to other markets because that's it's going to completely undermine. I mean, if another country makes a make makes a limitation just a little bit before the other country it can ruin the competition for an entire uh national market so the, the really it's the the nation state is is holding back this you know is, is holding humanity back from solving this problem marxism long ago explained that capitalism you know it played a progressive role in preparing the material and the, the productive basis for for abundance i mean we have the technical capacity to meet human needs if we harness the productive forces in a planned way, but under capitalism, the major barriers to human progress are the market, private ownership of the means of production and the nation state. And those are the same barriers which are preventing humanity from dealing with the climate crisis. You know, this is, I think, the realization that's, that's now dawning on, on millions of young people. And this is that shift in a socialist direction, in a revolutionary direction that uh, that we're seeing in the last couple of years in particular you know the this massive youth movement last year there were seven million um, who participated in the climate strike very young uh, people on, on the whole calling for a system change not climate change you know you you have this new wave of the movement inspired by uh, as Yvonne mentioned the figure of a 17 year old Swedish student Greta Thunberg with her message that world leaders are not listening so we're going to demand change including a change of the system. She has actually called for uh, a general strike. You know, this, I mean, this is the attitude that resonates with that young generation. To a certain degree, the, the Green New Deal in the U.S. also represents, uh, you know, the, the same trend. People gravitate toward it because it seems to acknowledge that a root and branch transformation of the, of the whole economy, the whole system is going to be necessary and that it should be tied to basic social demands like full employment and so on. There are some problems with the Green New Deal, though. You know, first of all, it's it's so vague and open-ended. It's actually not a, a piece of legislation or a bill that could be passed into law. It's more of a, a broad outline of goals, values for a green transition. The only concrete item in it, the only thing that it, it calls for is the creation of a congressional committee to further flesh it out. That's actually all it, all it has. It's just a 14-page document. Um, which is why a whole host of bourgeois politicians have signed on to it because it looks good and it doesn't commit them to doing anything. It's kind of like the abolish the police slogan, which can be filled with any range of content or none at all. You know, the Democratic Party can use it and then cast it aside 
just like now Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has, you know, placed on a meaningless task force that has no decision-making power. They can write resolutions about the climate and the whole plan, meanwhile, gets buried. The liberal media stops mentioning it altogether. Meanwhile, Fox News gives it more airtime than any other network in order to ridicule and demonize um, the so-called radical Green New Deal. So there's really no political vehicle for a bold program to transform the economy. Um, and of course, if there were a mass party of the working class, it would transform the debate about this. It would put it in class terms, which is the other main problem with the Green New Deal. It's not just that it's too vague. It's that it points the movement in the wrong direction, because instead of framing the struggle ahead as a class struggle against the interests of capital, which is what a socialist program would do, it suggests that this transition could take place within the limits of capitalism by com combining the taxation, you know, maybe we'll tax the rich and borrowing and Keynesian deficit financing, printing money and arguing that the increase in national debt will be offset by the economic growth that it will generate. But in reality, it doesn't acknowledge the central logic of, of capitalism. All human activity revolves around the accumulation of capital for a small minority. That profit motive, that's the driving force at the heart of the global economy. So if you start, if that's your starting point, it changes the way we frame the issue and think about the solution, because suddenly we have a very clear picture of what's the, the obstacle that's standing in the way of, of humanity. But the Green New Deal as it's drafted, it has no indication of the need to bring those industries into public ownership in order to, to be able to plan this transition. This transition, Actually, the British um, counterpart of the Green New Deal put forward in the Labour Party under Corbyn a couple of years ago um, had a, kind of a different approach. They, they called it the Green New Deal, but they clearly framed it as a class issue. I mean, they, they said that quite openly. And they demand nationalizing the energy sector, nationalizing whatever industries are necessary in order to carry out the, the transition and safeguard jobs. So AOC's version doesn't, doesn't present it that way. And it doesn't address the inevitable sabotage, the capital flight that would result, um, you know, or acknowledge the, the fact that the, the capitalist class will refuse to invest if there's no promise of a profitable return, which is why trillions are sitting uninvested in corporate bank accounts right now. So it's, it's one thing for the capitalists to accept in wartime you know, large scale government direction of the economy when they're mobilizing for short term interests, you know, that are threatened by foreign powers and the promise of, of foreign markets. Um, but, you know, this is this is a different situation. There's no immediate return for the capitalists to to protect the economy in a way that they can buy into. It was not the you know, the, the, the in terms of using this kind of New Deal framework, the new there's a, there's actually a, a myth that the New Deal ended the Great Depression. And in reality, it was the wartime destruction that provided the U.S. with a massive market for rebuilding at a time when all of its competition in Europe was destroyed. So, you know, all the state intervention of that period was also accompanied by generous compensation for the industries. You know, the nationalizations actually were temporary and they were all very lucrative arrangements for the bosses. And it was on the beginning of a protracted upswing uh, coming out of the war. Today, there is no prospect for a prolonged capitalist upswing like there was in the post-war era. And that means that as long as the key industries are in private hands, the massive investment that we need on the scale of overhaul that's required will only come at the expense of the profits um, or, uh, or at the expense of the rest of the population. That's, the, that's the, really the two options we have within a class society. That's the, the reality that we face. 
some have pointed out that the that one of the side effects of the pandemic has been an unprecedented reduction in carbon emissions. And it's true, there was a plunge in economic activity. You know, I think air traffic was reduced uh, this spring between 60 and 90 percent. Um, the roads were cleared of cars. A lot of people stayed home. Office buildings were shut down as people worked from home. And the cost for this was that millions lost their incomes and they were threatened with eviction. They have a spike in millions of people going hungry. And the resulting reduction in carbon emissions was around 8.8%, which is nowhere near what's required. That not only means that you had over 90% of the emissions continuing, but it also means that if you want to step down emissions at this rate over the course of the next decade, um, it wouldn't just be staying at this level of kind of COVID shutdown it would mean further drastic reductions in all areas of the economy year after year. I mean, that's, that's if we do it within the limits of, of a capitalist market. And I think it goes without saying that in inducing a global depression in no way addresses the, the, the crisis because the aim is to try to prevent millions from sinking into starvation and, and barbarism. But it also shows you that within the limits of capitalism, that's, that's, you know, there's no way within the market to carry the transition out without mass dislocation. If, if we see what 8% reduction in emissions looks like, just imagine what it's going to mean to carry out 100% while ensuring that you not only have massive investment in new energy sources, but you're also safeguarding people's livelihoods from complete uh, collapse. You know, that it's pretty self-evident that that is not something realistic to expect from capitalism. You know, and that's why we need a planned economy, a, a democratically administered control under the, the control of the working class. Um, and until the workers are in a position to come to power and replace capitalism with a, a planned economy, that mass dislocation is the, the prospect that awaits, including under a Biden administration. You know, the, the media right now is showering Biden with praise for being the climate president and putting forward it. You know, they say he's putting forward this ambitious plan to address the climate crisis. And this is the first time in a presidential debate that they've discussed, that they've asked questions about the climate. And, you know, a lot of people on the left have also echoed this logic and, and they've said, at least in this area of the climate crisis, you know, doesn't Biden represent the lesser evil? I mean, Trump is a is a climate denier and he filled the EPA with fossil fuel executives. So this has to be better. Right. But I think we need to push back against this logic and, and really dispel this. You know, Biden's victory is not a, the victory of the climate. Biden's victory represents the victory of Wall Street's reliable center ground candidate, as we discussed this morning in, in the, the earlier session. And he himself made very clear on the debate stage, you know, where, I mean, he says, here's the deal. I don't support the Green New Deal. He also does not support a ban on, on fracking. So despite all this talk about green jobs, what he defends is, is capitalism, not the, the transition. What he has pledged to do is to roll back the, the damage under the Trump administration by bringing back some of the Obama era regulations, rejoining the Paris Agreement. Again, a symbolic gesture. I mean, that's how the lesser evil logic works. You can propose going back to what you had four years ago. And if the intermediate four years were a lot worse, then you can present it like it's a big victory. And really, you haven't moved at all. But I mean, it's, it's also, we should look at the legacy of the Obama-Biden years. It's not like this guy wasn't in power before. You know, they had two terms. So did they use that opportunity to take action to stop emissions in those eight years? Oil production grew 88% under those two terms. They presided over the fastest growth in oil production in U.S. history. 
That's the Obama-Biden legacy. Production of crude oil and natural gas increased by an incredible 6 million barrels per day. Under no other president in all of history of the U.S. has the expansion of the fossil fuel sector gone through the kind of boom that it saw under Obama and Biden. Of course, the, the fracking boom took off under their watch. Obama wanted to present himself as also as a big progressive you know, defender of climate change. And yet, you know, a lot of the environmental advisors in that administration went on to get lucrative jobs in the fossil fuel industry. And, and those people, you know, they had something to show for their role in the administration. Those are the same people that Biden is surrounding himself with now. So he's made a lot of platitudes about taking on the challenge of climate change. And yet he has surrounded himself with so-called industry leaders and investors whose main concern is that any transition that does take place is going to be a highly profitable one for capital. You know, the Intercept actually published a list of all the, the climate advisors that he has working for him who are also sitting on the, the boards of gas and oil companies. Uh, Obama's Secretary of Energy uh, is, is an executive on the board of a natural gas company. He's, he's uh, advising the Biden camp. Um, uh, other people that work, worked as liaison you know, between the energy industry under Obama, they have now gone on to, to become uh, you know, board members of major gas companies. Uh, Jason Bordoff is another climate advisor under, uh, who was a, a climate advisor under Obama, sits on the National Petroleum Council, an industry group of oil and gas executives that advise uh, the Department of Energy, went on to form a policy think tank funded by Exxon, Chevron, BP. Uh, I mean, to back up all the fuel, the fossil fuel industry talking points, Brian Deese is a senior Obama aide who, worked for, who works for BlackRock. So they're the world's largest asset manager so big that they can boast about being the world's largest investor in renewables. And at the same time, they're the world's largest investor in fossil fuels. Those are the people that Biden is, is surrounding himself with. So, you know, they're, they're all going to make sure that his plan for a carbon-free future, by the way, it's, it's net carbon neutrality is what he's promising. And not in the space of a decade, he's promising it with a 30-year due date. So whatever he does for the next four years, those people are going to make sure that it's not disruptive to business as usual. And it's clear, it's, you know, it's not clear how you can actually be in favor of a transition to carbon neutrality and still not favor a ban on, on fossil fuels. But what is clear is that any transition that, that takes place is going to come at the expense of the working class. You know, he's promising green jobs. He's promising, you know, that life's going to get better. Once again, what we have ahead is going to be a democratic administration that will not deliver. If you consider what the Obama administration presided over, the weakest recovery in history, a period of decline that, as we, as we discussed this morning, fueled the discontent and prepared the way for the rise of Trump. Just consider how much more serious the 2020 crisis is compared to 2008. You know, we don't have a period of growth ahead. We have a period of decline and crisis and a likely full-scale depression, which, could, which now the, the bourgeoisie and the right-wing media can blame on the climate president. You know, he'll, he'll use the excuse that he's being held back by the, the Republican majority in the Senate if they don't win these two uh, razor-thin races in Georgia, just like Obama did. Never mind the fact that he, he controlled both houses during his first years in office, and we saw what he did with it. He launched the largest oil boom in, in history. So the Democratic Party, the party that has won, is not the party of the environment. It's the party of the capitalist class. 
And once again, we, we come back to the problem of the, the lesser evil logic. We're told that we need to support one against the other and that this is a very urgent question. And we agree, this is urgent. There is no time to waste. But we argue that the urgent task is to create an independent party of the working class to escape from this two-party logic and the, the rules of the system that are preventing action because the working class is the only force in society that can actually confront this crisis head on through a, a class struggle. A lot of workers, you know, they are skeptical when they hear Democrats talking about a just transition. You know, they, they've been left out before. You know, consider the devastation that so many sectors, industrial sectors have gone through only to, you know, with all the promises I'm sure that were made to them, only to let its workforce fall into poverty and, and despair. So why should those workers now cast those doubts aside when the same Democratic politicians who claim to stand for a just transition, then they turn around and they grovel before Nancy Pelosi and, and join the administration of a Wall Street candidate? You know, the, the, that's the other side of the lesser evil logic of treating the Democrats as the friendlier option it's only resulted in pushing more workers into the Republican camp because it's, it's only increased the division in the working class and reinforced the, the liberal media's framing of a cultural divide in the U.S. rather than cutting across it with a bold attack against both capitalist parties, putting forward a clear class independent path toward the, the transformation of society. And that's what a socialist program needs to do in order to win the, the working class to a, a revolutionary transition of the economy under workers' control. You know, th this grim prospect of, of the climate crisis is a powerful, heavy realization that's going to continue to unfold. You know, as this crisis plays out, it's going to generate a powerful, powerful response among the youth and growing layers of the, the working class. And, you know, those emotions can be channeled into the dead end of despair or they can be channeled into revolution, a revolutionary program for, for socialist planning. And I think we have a, a crucial role to play in this fight to orient the movement away from the dead end of trying to appeal to capitalist governments, policymakers, industries, and orient it to the working class. And we need to have you know, a sense of urgency, but also not let ourselves be gripped by, by panic. You know, there, there is a solution and humanity has the power to make it happen. We have power to bring that revolutionary message to the working class. So the struggle for an urgent transition in the economy, it's going to be a class struggle. It's going to be carried out against the will of the fossil fuel sector, the energy sector, the capitalists of every sector who benefit from the current arrangement. But that means that the working class needs an independent party of its own, um, a mass socialist party with a, a bold program. A socialist program for a, a workers' government would expropriate the necessary, the necessary sectors and bring them under the democratic control of, of the working class. Energy, the large construction companies, transportation, as well as all the other monopolies which represent key levers of the economy, the banks, mines, resources. And with that kind of leverage, Cummins have said, you know, basically a workers' government needs to nationalize the Fortune 500. With that kind of leverage, it would be possible to rapidly transform all industry, all energy infrastructure, to completely carbon-free systems while investing massively, not only in mitigation measures like reforestation and flood defenses, but also dramatically improving living standards for the working class. The, the working class needs to be won to this program. And you do that by guaranteeing full employment, raising wages, shortening the work week, ensuring everyone has adequate housing, capping housing costs, lowering rents and utilities, providing quality 
universal healthcare, education, mass transit. The, the green movement has not offered that, you know, in, in a revolutionary program. And that's, that's the problem. You know, the, the resources and technology exist for a massive improvement in standard of living, for a massive overhaul of the, the energy infrastructure. Uh, but they're being constrained by the market. They need to be harnessed by society and brought under conscious human control. And I think in the end, that's the reality of what a socialist program offers. It's the difference between organizing all human activity around the laws of the market, a very arbitrary way of, of organizing the activity of, of billions of people just to serve the accumulation of capital for a small minority at the expense of every other objective. We either have that or we have consciously and democratically setting human objectives for what we want to do with the immense productive potential that we now have so that it can serve human needs and ultimately the, the needs of all life on this planet. There are tens of millions of people moving in the direction of socialism today. You know, that, that map of America coming apart of the polarization, it, it hides, it conceals the real discontent that's at the heart of that polarization. And that there's, there is another pole, there is another current, and it's not going towards Biden, it's not going towards Trump. There are millions of young people and workers who want uh, to end capitalism. They, they can see through this. And that's including the, the majority of the, the young generation whose entire life experience has been shaped by one crisis after another. Our task is to organize that layer into a force that can win over the vast majority of the working class for a socialist program and, and a government of the working class. And that is the way to, to solve this dilemma before humanity of socialism or barbarism. And uh, we're confident that given that option, the working class will choose socialism in our lifetime. Thanks for listening to Socialist Revolution Podcast. In the coming days, we'll be publishing the remaining sessions from our recent National Marxist School, so make sure that you stay tuned for that. Please share the podcast with your friends, your family, on social media. Make sure you click the subscribe button, give it a five-star rating. And if you liked what you heard, why not reach out and get involved? You can visit socialistrevolution.org to find out more. Uh, you'll find links to subscribe to our magazine, to donate, and to join us in the fight for socialism in our lifetime.